Welcome to Naturally Nourished, a food is medicine podcast that delivers cutting edge information and solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought out by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only and should not be used in place of any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from a licensed health professional. Now welcome your host, Allie Miller, integrative dietitian and owner of Naturally Nourished, and her vice president, integrative dietitian Carly Vogler. Hello, welcome to episode 25 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. It's Allie Miller here with Carly. Hi, everyone. Hey, uh, today we're going to be talking about my second trimester of my pregnancy. Very excited to share. <laughs> yes, I'm very excited for all the details. Even I don't know all of these things. Yes, yes. So we're going to delve into my second trimester. Um, and so first off, I'll kind of kick off a little bit of a summary for those of you that didn't hear my first trimester so I can kind of go into what happened during weeks 13 to 26. Um, so I guess after I found out that we were pregnant, um, we were really thrilled. We had been working with my endometriosis and uh, infertility for um, over half a year periods of time. I had done functional medicine approaches, working with an anti-inflammatory approach with the MRT diet. I had completed a candida cleanse to remove the yeast, which I had discussed was was more uteral focused versus in the um, intestinal tract for, for me and my body. And then I was also working with bioidentical hormones. I was on a bioidentical progesterone cream, a transdermal cream, which was assessed to be low from a salivary assessment of my hormones. And um, I also was working on my stress access. So that kind of four-part piece of an anti-inflammatory elimination diet, the candida cleanse, the stress access, and the bioidentical hormones, you know, one of those four or all of those four in perfect harmony kind of kick things into high gear. And um, I found out that I was pregnant in September of 2015. So that's, um, for anyone who hasn't heard the other stories, it's it's a, it's a really good to hear. Not everybody has those struggles. And who knows if Allie could have gotten pregnant without all, without all of those approaches. But it's really good to hear how you can really work a lot of angles because who knows what is causing infertility um, and have definitely some positive outcomes. So Yes, I- and, and beyond if you want to hear my story, uh, we also have an entire episode on infertility and talking about food as medicine intervention. Right. That's a great place to start for those of you listeners that are, are struggling with that currently. Agreed. So just to kind of finish off a little bit background of the first trimester. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what your diet was like at least. Yeah. So it really hadn't changed much. I I was really following what what we call our optimal eating protocol. Uh, Slightly more carbohydrates because I was really more ketogenic, especially following the candida cleanse. I was probably somewhere between 30 to 60, maybe 75 grams of carbs. And then when I did find out I was pregnant, I went more like 45 to 90, but still pretty moderate moderate to low carb and still following a pretty low grain intake, low, low of course, processed refined foods, 
but I started to, towards the tail end of my first trimester, we'll get into that today, bring in more frequent indulgences. I think that like kind of woe is me or I'm pregnant, I deserve this <laughs> type of mentality started to, to build in my brain towards the tail end. Um, and then supplementation was a big change for me. So I noticed in the first trimester, my biggest symptom was fatigue. And I think it was a double hit of both, of course, my body working on overtime, you know, creating how many thousands of cells per day in, in building organs and neurons and all of that fun stuff um, with the fetal development. But I also was fatigued not having the adrenal support that I was using during my pre-pregnancy time. So I had to pull off of my adrenogen and, and certain herbal adaptogenic herbs and things like that. I had no glutathione. Um, so all of this was playing a big role. And then I had started to tailor down or wean my progesterone because really after week 12, the placenta is um, amply providing ample amounts of uh, progesterone to keep the baby intact. And that, that early onset of miscarriage and low progesterone is really seen in the first trimester. I think that's good for people to hear too that some bioidentical hormone use is not unfounded and can be really helpful. Yes. Yeah absolutely a tool and and then you know the body can do its own work but i think definitely especially getting over that fearful time frame of the high risk it was really helpful to have that as a tool and, and i was monitoring my progesterone in the first trimester by serum or blood and then um, weaned when i was in a good place uh, starting around week 13. for sure and how was your weight gain first trimester yeah so I gained, I believe, about five, maybe six at most pounds of, of body weight, but I was feeling really bloated in the abdominal area. I really felt like I was carrying a lot of fluid retention and water, um, and I, I really started to, to feel emotional about that, being a dietitian, knowing that people I feel, you know, look at or compare my body when I'm grabbing clients and things like that. And I was getting to that kind of point of wanting to be like, hey guys, I'm pregnant, okay? Um, <laughs> where I was just transitioning up a pant size or having difficulty buttoning pants. Um, and, and again, I was in the acceptance phase, but I wasn't showing enough where I felt like I had that baby bump per se. I was just getting bigger. <laughs> um, and so that was a little bit of a dance and that definitely changed as I transitioned through uh, throughout my second trimester. For sure. And going back to the supplements that you were talking about, you know, there was a huge change in what you could take. What were you allowing yourself to take on a regular basis? Maintaining, yeah. So I was still taking the Thorn prenatal, which is a three times a day, uh, really bioavailable micronutrient formula. It has all of the methylated folate, uh, methylated B12, and then other nutrients to help with fetal cognitive function and fetal neurotube development like choline, um, trimethylglycate, um, and uh, some botanicals that are anti-inflammatory. So I stayed on the thorn um, one, three times a day, and that had 45 uh, grams of iron as well. And then um, I also uh, stayed on a high-quality fish oil. So I was doing the Omega Gen, I'm sorry, it's milligrams of iron. Um, I stayed on the Omega Genic 720 fish oil and was taking that two to three a day. And then again, the progesterone I was starting to wean. And then be that I am an MTHFR candidate, um, I was also taking an additional methylated B formula. I was rotating between uh, Vessel Care and then B Supreme back and forth. And then uh, finally I was taking uh, Rest and Regulate, 
which is our formula with the inositol and the uh, magnesium glycinate. So this was helping with a little bit of the fatigue, getting depth of sleep, and also um, aiding uh, moderately with uh, bowel motility. I think that's good to hear that, you know, prenatal is not the only safe supplement during pregnancy. And I think people can get nervous. I think even practitioners get nervous. Like, well, of course, there's no experimentation on women in pregnancy, so we don't really know. But there are things that are absolutely safe. So it's worth keeping it in mind and doing your research um, to see what's appropriate. It's actually really wild that a lot of physicians prophylactically provide like Dulcolax or stool softeners with a prenatal. And I find those to be, you know, on a daily basis much more harsh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, the rest and regulate, I personally took about four times a week and, um, inositol also, um, it can help with PCOS. It can help with, um, your glucose management or blood sugar management, mm-hmm. and it can help with, um, nausea. So especially in that first trimester it can be really helpful with like morning sickness and things like that. That's definitely good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so transitioning into second trimester now, what is the length of time here? What were the big events? What you know, kind of marked getting into that second trimester? So this is now going weeks 13 into 26, or some say 28. Again, I was shocked to realize that it's 40 weeks, not 36. Not nice. Not, yeah, no, I wasn't excited about that. Um, finding myself today at 34 weeks. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, so about 13 to 26 um, is, is looking at the time frame. And in this second trimester, and the things we're going to talk about today was my transition into um, – birthing with a midwife and also this was the time when I had some dynamic mood shifts uh, coping with depression I found out about um, a diagnosis of anemia and um, had to deal with that and then also I opted out of my oral glucose tolerance test which is usually done at about week 26. Okay so lots of fun things to dive into let's start with you transitioning to a midwife. I think some people are probably familiar, some people are not. So first, let's talk about what a midwife is and then what you personally were looking for. Yeah, so in the first trimester, you know, we talked about my goals of natural birth and and what have you. And in the second trimester, I, I knew the first trimester that I was, as I mentioned, you know, trying to kind of utilize my insurance policy, to be honest, to just kind of get the low intervention objective information and so I did my intervaginal ultrasound I did my abdominal ultrasound and the preliminary blood work I wanted them to assess my progesterone I wanted them to look at my CBC and and, and all of kind of the standard labs that we would assess Um, I knew I was going to transition to a midwife and we started to tour birthing facilities at the second trimester and the reason why I, I wanted to do a home birth is really comes back to kind of, I guess, my ethos or or values or concept of how I view the human body. And the idea that I really see behind it that I'm really excited for is is really trusting the function and the purpose or focus of my body and working to support the birthing process versus intervening and um, working with the wisdom of the natural process of the body, the hormonal interventions and changes that occur through cyclical change, through breath, through the the baby really driving the birthing process and, and allowing as a carrier of that. And um, I, I want to stay conscious and connected during the birthing um, timeframe. 
and look forward to that to be a spiritual phenomenon. <laughs> I've, I've heard it to be described as turning a light switch and rocketing to the moon, and I'm hoping that's how I experience it. We'll see. Sounds fabulous. <laughs> I've also heard people say that it's the most pain you'll ever experience in your entire life, you know, so I'm sure it's a combination of the two. For sure. Um, but I think that that's what I'm looking for is the full experience of pain and struggle as well as the connection and bliss, that dichotomy of that yin and yang, which will ultimately connect me to my child and, and experiencing my body through that process I'm, I'm looking forward to. For sure. And I think it's good to hear all all different perspectives and keeping everyone keeps an open mind that it's really about what you are looking for in your story but I think it's really good to hear Allie's story just so you know what one person is going through so that's definitely why we're we're doing this and why we're sharing and I I think that you know making a, a point from what I've seen I mean really this would translate throughout medical interventions in general But birth-related complications are primarily, unfortunately, iatrogenic, meaning that they're driven by medical intervention. So often what happens is Pitocin is administered to induce contractions, and Pitocin may be then administered too aggressively, so then they give the epidural, the epidural or the pain management medications in conjunction with the epidural slow down the baby's heart rate, so then they give more Pitocin, and it's this catch-22 of balancing out overdose with overdose and um, ultimately that leads to you know we're at right now a crazy percentage about 27 percent of childbirth is done through cesarean section and these are low-risk births Um, I actually just posted that today in the Houston area there's actually a really great website for Texas in general of cesarean births that are prophylactic or meaning without medical necessity Um, And and we've discussed in past episodes the influence of a C-section versus a vaginal birth on the microbiome of the baby and the hormonal transition between the woman. I mean, birthing the placenta is that transition of the hormonal shift that um, helps with that surge rebound within the body. Absolutely. So, So, yeah, so kind of, again, you know, trusting the wisdom of the body, seeing how the body reacts. And um, that, that was my, my biggest focus was trying to reduce sedatives and um, trying to uh, find that rhythm within my body and within my baby's body. For sure. And all these reasons are why you started to tour birth centers and meet midwives. Um, so why don't you tell people exactly what you were looking for and kind of what yeah. your criteria were? Yeah, because I think that often we think of, especially if we haven't, if we don't know a family member or a dear friend that has had a home birth, we think of this uh, really um, preliminary or archaic approach to like baby catching or what have you. And um, I was looking for a certified nurse midwife. So this is going to be a midwife that has gone to a university, has gone to medical school. Um, and this was a huge criteria for me because they would have hospital privilege and prescribing rights. So they have the ability to use IVs if needed, if if an IV um, antibiotic would be needed in case. Also, they are able to administer Pitocin, and they do this after the birth process. So rather than using Pitocin to induce contractions and labor, they let the body labor, they let the body do the work, and then if post-birth there's any hemorrhaging issues, they will uh, drip some Pitocin or administer Pitocin to help with the delivery of the placenta and help to stop the bleed out. So that's, of course, an important thing to look at for a high-risk concern. 
And then um, I was looking for a midwife that also had co-care with a neonatologist. So, you know, if there was any high-risk situation and I had to be, uh, you know, taken through vehicle to a emergency room, um, that there was a connection direct with a surgeon and with a high-skilled OBGYN that could do a emergency-type delivery. And during this trimester, you also found out the gender, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is funny. I was wanting to do the like you know new age uh gender reveal deal with brady and thought like, that we would pink cupcake yeah or pink balloons <laughs> yeah and i had actually talked to becky who does our food blog and i was like okay so we can use beet powder or blueberries <laughs> and we were talking about natural ways to do some fun sort of gender reveal deal um but we actually had stopped in we did our 12-week ultrasound uh, around thanksgiving and then we stopped in to see our OBGYN at week 16. Um, we had every four-week appointments at that time. And um, he had a small ultrasound in his office, and, he, and we were heading out to Wisconsin for the holidays. And he said, hey, well, let's just see what this baby's up to. And I wasn't even anticipating. I thought I would just do the 12-week and the 20-week. The 20-week is the anatomical one, which I also had during this trimester. Um, but at the 16-week ultrasound, he uh, was, you know, just using um, the uh, scope on my belly and said, hey, I could tell you guys the gender right now. And, and I said, oh, you know, we're going to do the gender reveal thing. And um, my, he, my husband was like, well, I want to know. And uh, then uh, my OBGYN kind of looked at me like, well, that's kind of lame. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, let's just know. So he told us we were having a girl and that he was 99% positive. And um, I'm, I'm excited with the way that that turned out um, to just kind of know right away. We um, kind of had inclination that it was a girl because her beat per minute of her heart rate was pretty high. And my mom was a, a nurse in a labor and delivery and she always said, oh, that's a trend of a girl. Um, so the, the Doppler from the first ultrasound was telling us that it was potentially a girl from that, that trend or wives tale. And then uh, I was hoping for a boy initially because I just thought they'd be more mellow. Brady always wanted a girl. But um, all in all, we ended up being really excited and we picked a name right away and went with uh, Stella Virginia. So we're dealing with that. Stella Virginia Miller. She's, she's expected in five weeks, hopefully. <laughs> Baby Stella. Yeah. So yeah. exciting. Yeah. Um, so beyond all the positive vibes and, you know, there's so many more fun things to fill in, but you know, we'll keep some of these things private. There's, yeah. there's been a lot of fun things along the way. I'm sure you all want to hear the medical stuff versus the coffee talk. Yeah, because I could talk all day about the fun clothes, but we won't go there. Yes. Um, so beyond all of these these fun things you experienced, there was also some stuff that I think was probably surprising that you didn't think that you'd be dealing with. Um, one that you had mentioned earlier being some anemia and so let's talk about the iron deficiency that you kind of ha let's talk about first of all how you found out about it yeah so i would definitely call this a medical miss or a error in in my treatment plan which makes me really concerned because it kind of scares me to know that you do have to be your own health advocate and we're hoping that that's something that this podcast does is that it empowers all of you listeners to ask questions from your healthcare practitioners and, and put your hands on the driver's wheel of your body, of the car or vehicle of your body. And um, beyond yes. pregnancy. Yeah, and any, <laughs> like in any time. Case, yeah, so you know? true. So um, it's funny because prior to, to this mishap, which I'm going to get into, my husband uh, was saying, 
you know, Allie, this is one of those things where I know you're smart, I know you do functional medicine, but just just don't be so alpha. Just let it happen. Just let the doctor kind of tell you. And so I was trying to be a little bit more open and passive, especially, you know, I had mentioned in the first trimester episode how he wasn't on board with the bioidentical progesterone. And I was given a a research study, I'm using air quotes with that, Mm -hmm. on a case study of a 47-year-old female in perimenopause. And that was his argument of me not using bioidentical progesterone. It was not a double-blind placebo. It had nothing to do with fertility. Um, And he simply was like, well, we like to use Clomid. Um, then after seeing my progesterone numbers said, well, why don't you just not change what you're doing? Which basically was like, okay, you're doing the right thing, but he didn't want to say that. Right. Um, so, you know, there was a little bit of ego dance from the onset, I believe. And, um, I started to get petechiae, which is red dots essentially. Um, and petechiae is truly the explosion of your capillaries. So tiny, tiny vessels in the body that start to pop. And there's tons of hemodynamic shifts in the body during your entire pregnancy because your blood flow is changing, fluid retention is changing, and this can often drive things like these capillary popping. Um, however, it's also typically tied to low platelet or low iron count. And so I was kind of watching my body change and witnessing the petechiae coming out more and more and more. And in fact, Carly probably uh, maybe didn't know that word, and I, I really didn't either mm-hmm. <laughs> until I said it like every week to her, like, yeah. check out my petechiae. Now I will never forget the word petechiae. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> and just to be clear, though, these things don't hurt. You just no. notice them, right? Right, right, right. So they're just visual, but they don't go away. Um, and so... I was recognizing this and I was a little concerned because in my past I had been anemic with a very low ferritin count and I told my OBGYN this and I asked him on week nine to run my CBC and my ferritin and then asked again at 12, oh, let's rerun the blood and see where it's at. So week nine, I did see the blood and everything was normal. At week 12, I never got to review the labs. And um, I was told, though, via message that everything was normal, but I never got to look at them, which is error one. Um, And meanwhile, weeks 13, 14, 15, 16 are passing. I asked him at week 20. So I saw him at 16, found out I was having a girl. At week 20, I had a anatomical ultrasound where they were looking at the chambers of the heart and all of the anatomy, looking at the fat behind the head of the baby to check for Down syndrome or any learning development issues or other serious disease states, doing a lot of genetic blood work at that time. And um, I asked again when we were reviewing my labs from the 16th week, you know, can we look at my chart? I'm, I'm experiencing all of this petechiae. I'm concerned about having a low iron count. And I was also really short of breath. So that's another fatigue, um, anemia type symptom. And with my chart closed, not even opening or referencing it, he looked me dead in the eyes and said, oh no, everything's normal. And I was like, okay, so my platelets as well. And he said, yep, everything's normal. And I said, well, I'm concerned about this petechiae. And he said, his response was, some women get petechiae, some women get acne. This is just one of those pregnancy things. Um, and, and pretty much dismissed me. And so, um, and I apologize, I didn't have blood work at week 20. My last labs were run at week 12. So this had gone from week 12. It had been advancing, getting worse and more severe. I was getting really short of breath. I was thinking, meanwhile, maybe it was the progesterone. And in fact, I remember lecturing during that time and really like gasping for yeah. air during that time. And um, 
I left the office and, and I actually that day also I had um, not had my urine dipped. I had not had my blood pressure taken and had not had my weight taken and they were dismissing me and I was like, well, don't you want to grab my vitals and had to also catch them on that. And on my way out, I knew already that that was my last appointment um, and I was going to transfer to a midwife. So as I collected my chart, um, I opened my chart and the first thing I see is low, hemoglo- low hemoglobin and low hematocrit. Um, so I was diagnostically anemic. Um, and it was just really, really frustrating to me to know that that was blood work from week 12 and this was now week 20. And this is and- also a top doctor in the medical field. I, I have you know, a connection to know that he's one of the good ones that everyone recommends at a, yes. a top hospital in Houston. So this is, you know, this isn't just a random doctor. This is someone coming highly recommended. Right. Um, so just don't always listen to the hype, I guess, just because of their mm-hmm. reputation. It doesn't matter. It's how you feel. And, and listening to that inner voice, I think, is the biggest takeaway from this. Because Allie knows the numbers, but she also just had this feeling. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it was at that moment when Brady looked at me and he was like, all right, Mama, put your hands back on the wheel. <laughs> like, okay, you could be the alpha again because that is a bunch of crap. So, so yeah, I, I just think that it was very frustrating knowing that from week 12 to week 20, I was dealing with the fatigue, shortness of breath, the petechiae that was uh, progressing significantly. And meanwhile, had asked and inquired three to four times about my iron count and told that it was normal, yet no one actually looked at it. That's, I mean, two months we're talking. And and it's your primary nutrition source to your your fetal development. So that's very concerning, you know. So, sure. so definitely something that was addressed immediately with my midwife. Um, so I transferred to over there. I think I had my first appointment at week 18 without the blood work <laughs> and then saw her again at week 22 um, when I had received the labs. And even she actually ended up calling me right when she received the faxed lab work and said, let's get you up to 90 uh, milligrams of iron, which is woo, um, doubling that 45. So. Um, We went to the 90 and um, I started that at about week 20 and I'm still at that range of iron and am maintaining at a um, normal hemoglobin and hematocrit. So Stella's being nourished and we're not worried about a bleed out with a home birth. That's also of course concerning if you're running anemic as it is. And um, she recommended slow FE, um, which is one of the main medical interventions for low iron. However, I went with a product called Floridix. This is a liquid iron supplement. I really like it. It's made from wildcraft herbs like nettle, also prune, and other things that help to fight against constipation, as well as a very bioavailable plant-derived iron. And then I also took Hemogenics, um, which is a glycinate form, a bisglycinate form of iron, which is very bioavailable and um, in the... Uh, ferrous form, so easy to absorb for the system. So I had a combination of those two products in addition to the thorn to get me up to my daily iron need. And we'll talk about the digestive shifts in a moment. (laughs) But first, I really want to talk about um, the mood shifts that you had alluded to, because I think this is something that so many people suffer from. It's almost supposed to be hush-hush. People are embarrassed about it, but I think it's really important to share. So um, how were you feeling at this point and what was what was this time like emotionally? Yeah, so, you know, the first trimester, as I mentioned, I was really fatigued. The second trimester, I started to also experience more of that fatigue. Um, but then I started to have also some mood changes with a little bit of depression. 
Uh, that hit me probably somewhere between weeks 14 to 17 or something like that. Um, and I think it's maybe because it takes about 90 days to experience the hormonal changes in the body. And, um, you know, although this would be beyond that period of time, which would be more of the 12 week period, I think that, you know, those first five weeks, you don't really know you're pregnant. And so lifestyle was pretty normal, had, had not reduced those supplements as discussed. So this was really my first 12 week period of knowing I was pregnant and experiencing those changes in my body. And it, it like I said, lasted for maybe two to three weeks. And um, it led to, it's this vicious cycle that I'm, I'm happy to share. It's, you know, personal, but it led to the woe is me feeling, which led to, to me, um, nostalgia, greater intake of carbohydrates. Like I remember I was doing a gluten-free crave cupcake, like at least once a week. It was like my like saving grace. Um, and it's just interesting to know that I, I was disappointed with myself looking back that I reverted to those classic nostalgia feel good replacement behaviors of like, I feel low, I'm going to take this to pick me up. And um, then that vice led to that vicious cookie cycle where then I craved another refined carbohydrate, felt crappy about eating it, felt bloated, <laughs> ate another one, and it, and it kind of went perpetual. And as I think objectively about it now, like I said, I think it was a myriad of influence. I think the hormonal shifts, the lack of the adrenal support and the cortisol demand on the body, and then the lack of the, the neurotransmitter support, as well as feeling in this, this dichotomy or dance of restriction and limitation. And um, luckily, I was able to kick out of it and I noticed a significant change when I went back to my higher fat, higher protein, lower carbohydrate approach that that also played that catch 22 of then, helping my brain feel more nourished, more cognitively sound, more balanced mood, less depression, anxiety. So, And I think that's one of those things too that I always get so sad when when clients think that their willpower is just low or, or they they just are so ashamed of themselves for not having control but it's so much beyond that half the time more than half the time most of the time it's beyond willpower it has so much to do about the neurotransmitter so the shame just is is perpetuating this cycle and i just i just wish people wouldn't be so hard on themselves and i'm sure when you're feeling hormonal that's where your brain takes you yeah but it's it's your biochemistry yeah well it's interesting is i remember talking to my mom on the phone and being like i'm not sure if i've ever experienced depression but i i think i'm depressed you know (laughs) that was really the only way i could describe it and i really got myself out of the woods by by just committing to certain behaviors and also i think it was okay to accept that you know acknowledge it for what it was and say you know i'm sure my hormones are dipping and flipping (laughs) and i'm gonna ride this out um I allowed myself to cry more and um, I committed to to getting into yoga. I actually never really was a yogi. I um, always did more like bar method or resistance training, stuff like that. And I actually started doing yoga twice a week, which was really therapeutic with breath and and finding that as a way to help to tonify my HPA access. And then um, really implemented a different work schedule. So I was able to do three mile walks with my husband and my dog every night. And again, the change in the diet of less carbs, more fat, keeping up with the high protein was really helpful. And 
I even started using things like my foam roller before bed, getting back into essential oils, anything that I could do to treat myself non-food related, I feel like played a great launch pad of, of getting out of that vicious cycle. Yeah, and those are things that can be utilized at all times, even of if, course, if yeah. not through pregnancy, but it's really good to know that those should stick yeah. um, to your you know, your everyday habits. And I think perspective of, of practicing gratitude is huge too. And that's something I, I committed to was, you know, every night focusing on what the best point of the day was and journaling that and um, thinking about this as a process and, and being more observant and acknowledge, acknowledging it versus trying to change it. For sure, um, and then and I think the waves pass. <laughs> I like I like what you said. Just saying, it's this is acknowledging how you feel and saying it's okay to feel this way. Right, and that's such a huge thing that people don't give themselves permission to feel how they feel, and it it might sound cheesy, but it's so allowed. Yeah. <laughs> so g- giving yourself permission to feel right. certain ways is like a breath of fresh air. I really think so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so let's now talk about the fun of iron. <laughs> yeah, so I think this contributed to it as well, actually. Yes, <laughs> talk about aggro. Um, yeah, because I had a significant digestive shift going from 45 milligrams to 90 milligrams of iron. Um, then came the constipation. And so I think it was a two-parter. One, significantly, of course, the iron contributing because it dehydrates the bowel. And so I was constantly, and I still do, I am a water drinker. Um, I drink like three plus liters of water every day. And so I kept my water up even though I was peeing all the time. (laughs) And that has continued. Um, But I think that the growth of Stella in my body compressing on my colon matched with the higher iron intake hit this perfect storm of compression and constipation and that also then drove my frustration and my my mood decline oh, yeah. um, <laughs> because you just don't feel good I am someone who has one to two bowel movements every day like clockwork and it is honestly inarguably one of my favorite times of the day that sounds so silly but like I mean that's that's something I look forward to is like oh and I can start my day um, and so I empathize and um, was going with all of my interventions for patients. I was doing things like um, pureed prunes with a tablespoon of coconut oil um, and heating that up and drinking that before bed. I was using a little bit more of the magnesium glycinate and then buffered vitamin C. I actually brought in buffered vitamin C to help with the iron absorption and the petechiae earlier, but I bumped this up because it can also be osmotic, so I was hoping that that would bring some water into the colon and help a little bit with um, the bowel motility. Yeah, like all the things that, this may cause diarrhea. Yes. Like, I'll take it. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And then, right, even though I bumped up my magnesium glycinate, because I was taking a product that also had the inositol, the the rest and regulate, I didn't want to bump that up too high, so I brought in mag citrate, which is a stool softener, and that really helped to kick things into uh, regularity. But it was at least um, from week, let's see, week... 17, 18. Well, I started the iron at week 20. So maybe week 20 to 24 when this was really the the more severe. And um, it really resolved around that 25th week. So, So this was something that was a big irritant to me, I think contributed and played a role in the mood decline. And um, I had to even during this time frame, and I'm, I'm happy to share this too, I know it might be TMI for some of you, but I had to use uh, Dolcolac suppositories um, 
three times during this this three to four week period. Um, the the first one was after I had traveled to Wisconsin for a baby shower and I had gone already two days without a movement. It was my TV segment morning. I was rushing, rushing, rushing. Missed my opportunity. Then traveled. Sometimes that'll throw me off anyway. And I hadn't gone the day before, so I had this three day com- compaction. And um, I ended up using the suppository because I really felt that that was the least do no harm intervention uh, for Stella and, and not consuming a stool softener, but, but using that as a suppository. So that was fun. So I did three of those during this time frame. And now I'm happy to say that I am back to regular and rocking. And I will also say decaf keto coffee does the trick. So adding my grass-fed butter, my coconut oil, that high fat really helps to lubricate with a little bit of that peristalsis stimulation from even the moderate amount of caffeine in the in the decaf. For sure. And it's good that you had, you know, you have to rely on something sometimes to get over the hump. Yes. And then, oh, the other food thing. So I did the decaf coffee with the keto, the butter and coconut oil, the prune juice with coconut oil as well, and then green smoothies I really got regular with, which I think the green smoothies with the magnesium also help mood. So, mm-hmm. you know, a whole kind of gamut of things. Definitely. And then um, using that foam roller both for relaxation but also to relax the uh, muscles and the lymphatic tissue down in that colon area I think also really helped. And and down dog and yoga. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a big one too for sure. Just try it all. Yes. <laughs> the whole gamut. Okay. So the last piece that you were dealing with that's, that's significant and worth mentioning was this oral glucose test that almost everyone has to do at week 26. Yeah. Yeah. So this is to um, assess for gestational diabetes. And it's important to acknowledge that, well, well, so I am a certified diabetes educator, and it's important to acknowledge that often people who are doing a clean eating diet and eating a little lower carbohydrate are going to get a false positive on an oral glucose tolerance test um, because it is to consume 50 grams of carbohydrates in a, in a oral glucose form, a very concentrated high glycemic index formula. And for those of us that are consuming 90 to 120 grams of carbs, which was about my average at that time, in low glycemic forms with fat, with protein, our body is not acclimated to experiencing that type of a jet up. And so it's really not indicating our body's response. So it's important to acknowledge that there can be definitely false positives. Um, And so, and the other element of why I did not want to participate in the oral glucose tolerance test was the formulation itself. That was the biggest driver. Um, When we're looking at the solution that's used, um, I mean, there's various products. Easy Dex is one. um, And and it's going to have things like... uh, natural flavorings, food starches that are modified, artificial colorants like yellow number six or red 40, um, different preservatives that I had not been consuming like benzoates and um, brominated soybean or vegetable oil. And this is a compound that can play a huge role within itself of endocrine disruption or hormonal um, complications as well as um, cardiovascular influence in the body and that's during some of the prime time of organ development for the baby so for someone that's eating really clean and a single ingredient oriented diet 
I, I mean, even at my baby shower, <laughs> my mom was dying because my gluten-free cake had to have no food colorant, you know, so it had to be white on white um, with the frosting, and she wanted a name on it, and, I, you know, there's a whole debate and ex- explanation of why. <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't work so hard to just consume this beverage for a potential invalid form of data. So that was kind of my background behind that. So what I ended up doing is I used a glucometer or a blood sugar monitor that diabetics use to do a finger prick. And I did 20 different blood tests. I did uh, seven of them fasting. And then I did the rest of them sporadically around um, two hours after meals. And then I did my own oral glucose tolerance test where I did 50 grams of carbohydrate from juice. Um, And so I drank pure sugar as far as the form of juice, but it was at least organic um, apple juice and tested my blood right before, tested it an hour after and two hours after and um, was able to provide those those values for my midwife and she was happy with that and um, haven't looked back and everything's moving well. We're not dealing with any macrosomia or blood sugar issues. So for those of you that are clean eaters, I would really recommend trying this method as an alternative. I think this is so important for people to have um, just self-empowerment, knowing that you don't have to just drink the yellow, bright yellow liquid. You have to drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> it's nasty. Um, but also understanding the why behind its purpose and how you can replace that with something that's not going to harm you. And this can be applied to so many different points about medical interventions and just you know taking control, understanding the whys, asking the questions, and knowing what you can do to substitute um, if you're not comfortable with something. I think it's really, really important to ask the questions. So, yeah, let's, let's, so, I mean, I think the big things that happened during this trimester, of course, we found out the gender. We had two more ultrasounds, the 16-week and the uh, 20-week. And um, we transitioned to the midwife. We treated the anemia. <laughs> we fired a doctor <laughs> and outed, um, opted out of the glucose uh, tolerance test. So it was very action-packed. Um, but like Carly had acknowledged, you know, it sounds like a lot of drama, like the depression, the constipation. Why would you want to get pregnant? Um, I, I want to go through just a couple of the, the positives of this trimester as well. And then um, we'll, we'll let you all go after this episode. Um, and so I think the big take homes of the positives of this trimester were um, the first one, which is the most exciting, was feeling uh, movement for the first time. Um, so around 22 weeks I started to feel little flutters in the belly that I wasn't sure if I could distinguish from like a gas pain or whatnot, Mm -hmm. especially because my constipation had just really uh, alleviated. Um, But around week 24, it was distinctive where I was able to find patterns of um, Stella's movement and able to determine kicks and um, flutters. And um, that's when it became really real and got really exciting. Like there is a human being in my body. Um, so that experience was was really phenomenal and, and remarkable and something that I would say was a huge positive. The other thing that was absolutely amazing of this trimester was my energy skyrocketed. So especially once I got over that mood shift, energy went up again and I was back to my quote unquote normal self of 
you know, working 16-hour days and <laughs> yeah, I saw Carly's eyes. But, you know, Brady's saying, oh, you were really good with closing your computer at 10 that first trimester. What's going on, Allie? Um, but I did get that huge surge of that second trimester boost of energy. So that was huge as well. And then I think that the other positive that I would note is the reaffirmation of what I was doing was right. And so, you know, that reaffirmation of working with the midwife and having her see eye to eye with me, the reaffirmation of transitioning from the darkness of the mood and knowing that diet does have an influence on maintaining healthy viability and long, long-term beneficial outcomes for both mind, body, and spirit. Um, and then the reaffirmation that I was comfortable and confident that my body could do the right thing and, and provide and um, nourish and, and nurture a child. So I think that those would be kind of the three things that I would say were a good take home on the experience. And um, I look so forward to sharing with you guys my third trimester, which I will record after giving birth to not to jinx it and probably talk about the birth story within that that trimester because um, there's not too much more action other than just more feeling and uh, less bladder <laughs> space and all sorts of fun stuff as I continue to grow and evolve. But uh, looking forward to sharing the birth story soon. That's the one I'm most excited about <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that if you're curious about trimester one or, or infertility approaches with functional medicine, check out the previous podcasts. And if you're in a place where you're dealing with issues and you just can't find the right practitioner, it's a beautiful thing. We now have virtual sessions where no matter where you are, we can have a session and focus on your issues with infertility um, or just supporting your pregnancy along the way, your healthy pregnancy. So all those good things are now included and available on Allie Miller RD. But thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying hearing Allie's um, triumphs and struggles and, and yes. her whole process. And again, can't wait for number three. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Carly at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.